For those of you listening to the podcast, just a reminder that in the notes of the podcast there, uh, whatever player you're using, you can see a, a link to download a PDF of the handout for tonight's um, core seminar. Uh, tonight we're covering sin. And so why don't I get us started with a word of prayer. Father, your word doesn't ignore the source of what has gone so wrong in the world and what is the, uh, the root problem uh, for all of the, the difficult things that we see. And so thank you for that. Thank you for being clear about it. I um, just ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us tonight that this would be, uh, you know, sin isn't exactly fun to talk about, not a, a cheery topic, as it were, and at the same time, an important thing to address, uh, to consider, to ponder, both to be reminded again of the dangers inherent in sin for even those of us who proclaim Jesus and are part of your family uh, who still struggle with a sin nature that we will struggle with all of our lives. Um, Father, give us wisdom here. Uh, give us words that we can share with those around us who don't understand uh, why there are the problems that they're facing. And so um, use this in only way that you can to advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Just a reminder, you can raise a hand at any point that you want. Ask a question or um, feel free to interrupt me as we want it to be interactive tonight. So, uh, to begin, an introduction, the fact of sin. I think we would all agree with the sentence that there is something terribly wrong with the world. If you spend even a few minutes perusing the Wall Street Journal, as I do every day, or maybe you watch the news or even a quick scan of the Mountain Mail, you'll find plenty of evidence to undergird that sentence, that there's something terribly wrong with the world. The question is, what's the problem? Some would say the issue is economic. There wouldn't be so much unrest and violent uprisings if there were vibrant, growing economies. Some say the issue is more judicial. It's the judiciary. Courts are corrupt or incapable of handling cases. Some say the issue is political. Congress bickers while ordinary people suffer. Some say the issue is the family too many single parents, no stable role models in the home. Some say the issue is education. People are basically good, but they're a blank slate and so need to receive knowledge and moral enlightenment or they're going to follow negative role models. We're not doing a good enough job of that. Now, while there may be a grain of truth in these responses, they all share one common theme. Proposing that the greatest problems that we face are structural that our most pressing problems are outside of us. Like a car that's out of alignment or a bone that's been broken, our world merely needs some fine-tuning, some structural repairs, and we're going to be as good as new and everything will be okay. And this is why the Bible is so helpful as it speaks into the circumstances of our world and raises a hand of silence to the voices that propose such assessments. What most, if not all of you, would likely agree agree with is that our most pressing problem isn't structural, 
but moral. It's not out there, but in here. Our problem is sin, which we know is the falling short of God's standard and the rebelling against his laws. Sin is what has messed up humanity so that all the structures of a society created by humans are shot through with that same intrinsic problem. But this creates a bit of a problem for Christians desiring to live by such biblical realities among others who don't believe as we do. It creates issues for this culture that we are seeking to build and create here at Grace, our circle diagram that you've been seeing on Sundays. That forging out of the kingdom of the heavenly realm in the midst of a fallen realm. And the issues that it creates is because sin in our culture is, well, some would say it's so passe. <laughs> it's so repressive and negative. I think it's true that we live in a culture where sin no longer makes sense. Sin has vanished from our moral imagination because God has vanished. I don't think that you're going to spend time at the biker and the baker or Tony's Waffles or the boathouse and overhear many, if any, conversations about the struggle with sin. At least not explicitly, right? Like using that. You may hear conversations about struggles that we know are the result of sin, but you're not hearing it in terms of if we could only fix the sin issue, <laughs> how it can be dealt with truly so that healing of so much that has gone wrong might occur to get to like really get at the deep underlying issues for all that ails us as a community. Again, what we know as any good doctor would, if you misunderstand the disease, you'll never arrive at a cure. So if you keep prescribing the wrong treatment for what is so horribly wrong, you'll be constantly confused why things don't seem to get any better because you're not dealing with the root issue. This is the problem of sin. Once you begin talking about sin as if it's real, that it is an actual thing, well, to even suggest the reality of sin is, is itself suggesting a standard, which is probably why people don't want to talk about it explicitly. You can't talk about missing a mark without knowing what the mark is. You can't discuss falling short without knowing what you were aiming for. You can't even define something as evil, say Hamas brutally raping, killing, and imprisoning innocents, or the sex trafficker trafficking vulnerable women, or the pornography industry destroying the lives of men and women and our cultural understanding of human sexuality. You can't call that evil. You can't express moral revulsion without some kind of standard for the good, the beautiful, and the true. And the issue is, this is the issue, right? Who gets to set the standard? If you deny God, if you deny, deny his authority to do so, to set the standard, then how can you honestly logically deny anybody anything because at that point it only becomes one human's opinion over against another and so it's just majority rule at that point or the one who's the strongest might makes right we say our largely atheistic world like atheistic right not believing in god world lives in this uneasy contradiction we're moral agents, and yet we're seeking to live with 
thinly defined and highly subjective moral standards. Our culture these days seems to define something as wrong mainly if it hurts someone else, which makes the standard for morality another person's claim to have been harmed. The secular West, in a quest for freedom from the eye of God, has traded a perfect divine standard for the shifting standards of what makes any person feel hurt, which ironically leads not to liberty, but anarchy. In contrast, God in his word teaches, as his, and as his children and disciples of his son Jesus, we also teach that sin, as defined by God, in relationship to who he is, and the laws and standards he has defined and made clear, is the only way to make sense of the brokenness we see in the world. Humans acting in sinful ways, as made clear by the existence of God, and his standards for the good, the beautiful, and the true. So, sin in the biblical story. The story that we find in the Bible is clear about the presence of sin in our world. We could see some of the movements in the story if we turned to Genesis and started reading through, right? We, we go from everything being good in Genesis 1 and 2 to expulsion from this promised land in Genesis 3, murder in Genesis 4, the refrain in Genesis 5 that they died and they died and they died and they died. A flood in Genesis 6 through 9 and Babel in Genesis 11. And that whole parade of wreckage stems from the sin present in the story of Genesis 3. A parade of wreckage that unfortunately for humanity winds its way through the entirety of the biblical story. In fact, sin is such a dominant concern in the Old Testament, there are several words used in Hebrew to try to capture what it means. The most common word for sin in Hebrew, chatah, occurs about 600 times. It carries the sense of missing the target, failing, falling short of the goal. The second most common term for sin, avon, Translated iniquity in older translations, wickedness, perversion in more modern translations, has a root meaning of bending or twisting. Here the image is one of distortion. Sin is a perversion. The alteration of something from its original course, meaning, or state, to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. So a falling short or missing a target or a perversion alteration or distortion or corruption. A third term, uh, Pesach, is usually rendered in, I'm doing my best with Hebrew translations or uh, pronunciations, so. Um, a third term for sin is usually rendered transgression or revolt or rebellion. Crime might be a modern equivalent here. Uh, so sin is criminal behavior against God's law. The Bible also speaks of sin as unrighteousness, as ungodliness, or as a debt to be paid. And one of the most devastating consequences of sin, and this is devastating, is that it makes us unfit for God's presence. Isaiah 59 two. But your iniquities are separating you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Let me read that again. 
but your iniquities are separating you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. One way to think about sin is that it is elevating the self to the place that only God should have. Or maybe imagine a tree. I was thinking about this. Um, years ago, I was in this uh, seminar called Saturate. It was Jeff Vanderstelt and um, teaching about just really just trying to live the Christian life well in the culture in which we live. And one of the things he was working through at this one moment was sin. And I remember him drawing. I could not find the exact. I remember writing in my notes, <laughs> searching all through my notes this week, um, trying to give the exact example because he explained it really well. But I hadn't thought about it this way before that that pride really is the root of all sin, right? Like the, the pride that leads to, I want to be in the place of God. I want to decide right and wrong. I want to decide what's best for me. I want the place of God. And, and so every sin finds its root in that basic unbelief of God being God and me wanting to take his place. And then the trunk, just think of what, what grows out of a particular uh, expression of pride. So whether it's anxiety, whether it's lust, whether like that's kind of the trunk of the tree. And then, and then we start to see all of the, the fruit, the bad fruit that comes of that. His point with that was make sure that in trying to deal with any particular sin, you always go to the root, address it at the root, that ultimately this is about me trying to take the place of God. We see that confirmed in the first temptation, right? Genesis chapter three, verse five, the Satan said to the woman, you will be like God. We know that what strikes at the root of this, and we know what strikes at the root of this sin issue. Better we know who. The solution to the problem of sin is Jesus, the Messiah. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he proclaimed, look, the Lamb of God, this is John 1, who takes away what? The sin, the sin of the world. That was the reason that he was named Jesus, right? Matthew 1, 21. You are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the solution. But to appreciate the salvation our Messiah came to bring, let's linger a bit at the beginning here a bit more to see in the fall of man the essence of sin. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. All right, 
God has made the world and everything in it at this point, and it was good. He made man and woman to express dominion over all that he has made, to rule the earth and subdue it. And then we come to Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die which itself is not a true representation of actually what God had said to her. So we've already got a problem. Verse 4, no, you will, not certain, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, saying nothing. And he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We see in this chapter, a description of how sin tragically entered into the human condition. It gives an explanation for the universality of our sinful condition, and it prepares us for how the God of creation will show himself also to be the God of redemption. This first sin, the eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, teaches us, let's look at three things that we could learn about all sin generally. First, Notice how their sin sought to redefine the basis for knowledge. It gave a different answer to the question, what is true? Whereas God had said that Adam and Eve would die if they ate from the tree, Genesis 2.17, the serpent said, you will not surely die, Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. Eve, in this moment, decides to disbelieve God's word, and to conduct an experiment to see whether God spoke truthfully. Part of the way sin works is to convince us that God's word isn't trustworthy, which we're not always, I don't, I don't think we're always maybe working, thinking of it that way, um, that his word isn't trustworthy. That, that's probably part of the problem is that we're not explicitly thinking, but that's what we're we're functionally acting that way, right? When we choose to sin and go against God's word. Sin says things like, you don't have to follow God's word. Or, don't worry that you didn't follow his word. I mean, you're only human, right? Isn't following his commands actually really beyond you? Or, God is trying to keep you, in light of what the serpent says, God is trying to keep you from truly experiencing pleasure and delight. This won't really hurt anything. I mean, you want to feel good. It's, it's okay to feel good. He created those desires in you. It's not your fault, so go ahead. Is that not what a lot of the culture is saying? And in these ways, our acts of sin begin with believing a lie. And whether or not we want to admit it, therefore disbelieving God. Because that's, isn't that the crux of when we make a choice to sin? Is we're saying, I don't believe 
I don't believe God in this moment. I'm, I'm setting aside what he has said about whatever this issue is, and I'm choosing to believe myself. I, I, I'm putting myself in the place of God. Does that make sense? Agree, disagree? Their sin sought to redefine, second, their sin sought to redefine the basis for moral standards. It gave a different answer to the question, what is right? God had said that it was morally right of Adam and Eve not to eat from the, from the fruit of one tree. But the serpent suggested that it would be right to eat of the fruit and that in eating it, Adam and Eve would become like God. Eve trusted her own evaluation of what was right rather than allowing God's word to define right and wrong. Third, their sin sought to redefine the basis for identity. It gave a different answer to the question, who am I? The correct answer was that Adam and Eve were God's creatures dependent on him and to be always subordinate to him as their creator and king. But Eve and then Adam succumbed to the temptation to be like God, thus attempting to put themselves in the place of God. And as we said earlier, we see here the pride that lies at the heart of sin. It's forsaking God in order to find in yourself what you were meant to find in God. So Genesis 3 teaches that God created humankind good, not flawed. But Adam and Eve chose to disobey. And as a consequence of their sin, God curses mankind and the creation with the sentence of death. Suffering, sickness, disease, natural disasters, they did not exist before this moment. But are therefore afterwards the results of the fall. Okay, any questions or comments so far? Brian. But then he does. But, but then he does. That's true. And he had to but, live as a result of it for 930 years. But there's, and mankind you know, is living so with so itself. There's things yeah. where I'm just, you're looking at it and you're like, well, am I going to die or am I not going to die? Um, type of thing. I think there's something to the, the calculus of that Eve was making in addition to how good looking the fruit was. <laughs> There's other hands shooting up. Yes. I would maintain that Adam and Eve died instantaneously. They died in their relationship to God. Spiritual. That was that was absolutely dead as a result of 
their transgressions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it, that the, what God said exactly came to pass, even though the physical sentence was commuted for 700 years. Mm -hmm. right. So are you saying there was no more contact with God? No. But not the kind of fellowship that right. they had enjoyed before. And, and if you read Genesis, it's very clear that, that Adam and Eve at one time enjoyed a face-to-face -face relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Something that Moses approached but never really realized. But even in Genesis chapter 4, it appears that Cain, for example, had a face-to-face -face conversation with God. Has a conversation. Has a conversation. Not, yeah. not necessarily, not a face-to-face -face relationship with God. Not a naked, you know, I mean, really. That, that nakedness aspect of the whole thing suggests just a total openness, a frankness. Transparency. The transpa that's the word. Transparency that we can no longer fully enjoy in this life. But I also have another point that I just have to make. <laughs> Eve wasn't even created when God gave the command to Adam. And Adam's standing right there, as you pointed out when she <laughs> takes the fruit. So, be fair to Eve here, please. Well, I think we know from the rest of the teaching of, of Scripture that, uh, yes, God in, in uh, relationships between men and women, are he's always going to come looking for the man. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, yes, I would, I, I think, I mean, they both bear responsibility. Right. But I think Adam, certainly, I, I feel like we learned from Romans 5, um, becomes this, uh, you know, the, kind of this idea of federal headship. He, he becomes, and we're talking about a little bit later here, he becomes a representative just as Messiah is a representative. And so there's, there's this responsibility. He's ultimately to blame. Right. When, when Paul really makes that case, he doesn't talk about Eve in Romans 5. He talks about Adam. Um, yeah, so I think, I think you're right. I think there's a, there's a, a kind of... Um, somewhat of a metaphorical use of, of kind of death language there. And, and, it's, and certainly this is, this is a first example of exile. So I think like breaking relationship, they're sent into exile, right? Like they're, they're exiled from the land that was, was promised, a land that was supposed to, they were supposed to be fruitful, multiply, cover the earth. They were supposed to expand this kingdom that, they, that God had set them in in Eden. And instead he walls it off and, and they're exiled from, from that experience that they were meant to enjoy. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and so I'm, I'm not sure if it's answering your question. I, I think... I didn't really put it in the form of a question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. Or you're, or it's not answering the, the issue you're raising. Um, Okay, well, another new theological thought I've heard from you, Brian. Um, you, won't, you won't find that probably <laughs> I'm looking forward to your monograph. Okay. <laughs> well, somebody famous once said that uh, you, uh, you can't 
cannot, you may not like the rules of economics, but you cannot repeal them. <laughs> All right, let's go to the origin of sin, which we've, you know, talked a little bit about in, in our discussion of providence and, you know, God and the origin of evil. And um, so this is, uh, we'll cover some, a little bit of familiar ground. There'll be some overlap here, but um, the origin of sin. When and how did sin originate? We see in Genesis 3 the first human sin, but we also see a serpent wickedly tempting Adam and Eve. Surely the serpent was sinning in doing this in our understanding of sin. So in response to this, first we must insist, as we have previously, that sin doesn't originate in God. Sin and evil in theology and the Bible are totally alien to God. His eyes are too pure to look on evil, Habakkuk 1.13. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1.5. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, James 1.13. Deuteronomy 32.4 declares that God's work, quote, is perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God without bias, he is righteous and true. Second, there are hints in scripture that prior to this moment in the garden, there had been a fall, quote unquote, among some of the angels. Not much is said about what happened or why it happened. The closest we get may be Jude verse six. And the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has, a kept, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. And 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. So it, it's clear that something was happening there pre what we see in Genesis 1. Similar to what happened with Adam and Eve, it seems these angels were not satisfied with their place, but desired a higher position. And pride and conceit bred rebellion against God. I think we have to be clear in this, that Satan, and, and again, uh, thanks to Brian, I'm continuing to read, just was reading it again last night, Brian, The Unseen Realm, and so I'm, I'm really enjoying, um, is it Heisner? Heiser. Yeah. Um, uh, I, if, if it's okay, I might add with regards to the angelic fall. Um, so there's more detail about this in the book of First Enoch, which um, some people Well, and it's extra biblical literature that can yeah, still be helpful. Biblical. Yeah. And, um, Heiser and other people actually note that what's being quoted from Jude 6 and 2 Peter is actually taken almost directly from passages in the book of 1 Peter. Hmm. And that's actually related to what is going on in, in Genesis 6, where it talks about the sons of God. Right, yeah, the, kind of the um, what he calls the divine council. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm fascinated to keep reading and understanding there, kind of. So, like saying right now that the Satan isn't. I, I don't think we want to say that it's like he's a second deity. Um, he's still a created being, but not human, and so still I'm still wrestling with this idea that's new to me of. Um, really understanding like the Hebrew word 
uh, Elohim, that there's, it seems there's like a, like a capital E, I, I think I said a couple weeks ago, like a capital E Elohim and a small E Elohim, that there's this divine council, but God is still the ruling presence in this divine council of, for now, I want to say God-like beings. Um, yeah, so it's, he's, he's not, I don't think he's, like when I think of the, is it the, either the confession, the catechism, or both, when, when it talks about the Trinity, right? Like one God, equal in substance, in power, three persons. I don't think the Satan is that equal in substance and power kind of being, and yet not human and warring against God, clearly in rebellion against God. Um, so, the, Right, I know, right. So again, this is a, I've not, I'm just being honest about in my Christian life, I have not spent very much time thinking about that. And I didn't grow up in a tradition that spent a lot of time thinking about what he calls the unseen realm or, you know, Paul talking about. I, I don't know that. I mean, I grew up in a church and before I came across this, I'd never heard of it and I'd never heard anybody give a sermon on. Uh, right. Yeah. Any of that. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Ah, instead of instead of pre, yeah. instead of pre Genesis one. Yeah, Bruce. So I help you with the, and I don't even know the passage to raise the question. I think it's in Isaiah, but I'm not sure. Just the idea of the the fallen sun, the fallen star, the fallen light, whatever it is, and we often ascribe that to the Satan. And I'm just curious in the discussion we're all having where that might fit in if you're establishing Satan and the, the angelic fall and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that could be that could be further support for that idea. And I think it's actually interestingly um, studying night before last on on just. I was, I'm reading it. I'm trying to remember the other book I'm reading now that was crossing lines with, with Heisner. And I think Heisner says this as well. Just the idea of, I think part of it is we're so trapped, understandably, in our own cultural context, in our own cultural thinking. And so these texts are written to people who very easy, like this was not a struggle for them. They were very, and it's like it's been super helpful to me it was, it was very easy for them because they thought in terms of supernatural powers. They, so they thought in terms of the stars, for example. Um, most of the cultures thought those were supernatural beings because they were these bright lights in the head because the heavens was this place of supernatural powers that were moving. So they must be some kind of life form because the stars would move through the firmament, through the skies. Um, so it's, yeah, just getting ourselves, again, trying to get ourselves back into Moses writing in, a, in an ancient Near Eastern context, right, to a people who believed in the reality of these things. Um, 
and, and we live in this, this age that has difficulty wanting to acknowledge those realities, um, things that we cannot see, the unseen realm, as the book is entitled. Um, so anyway, a, as, we've, as we've learned previously in our discussion on providence, um, part of what I'm just wanting us to hold is to recognize um, that we struggle a bit with exactly where, where was the origin of sin, exactly when did it happen. The, the text gives us bits and pieces, not a, a super clear picture, but that's where we just have to rest in God's providence and his sovereignty and what he wants to explain to us and what he doesn't want to explain to us. It, the Bible seems mainly concerned to explain the fall of humanity, which has affected all of us, um, and wants to insist that God is sovereign and he is the standard of goodness um, and that he has done no wrong. So I just take us back to uh, last week when we talked about our discussion of, of Macbeth and understanding that Shakespeare could not be held accountable for the murder of one of his characters, even though he was the author of the world in which his characters operated and those characters that were operating within that world. And that we must ultimately say, um, I hope this is a comfort to you, <laughs> that maybe in your frustration to try and understand some of those things that this is a mystery. Remember my joy last week reading Calvin um, and his admission of ignorance at the end of all of his study to admit, I am ignorant of these things. And Calvin's far smarter than I am. While we know that the existence of evil and God's goodness and sovereignty are compatible truths, Scripture doesn't reveal to us how they are compatible. It would be presumptuous to claim that we do know these secret things of God. As we just saw, the very first human sin involved trying to know hidden things and thus be like God. We are the creatures. He is the creator. Much more could be said about the existence, origin of evil, but let's leave it at that for now. So, any further comments or questions at this point that now that we've thought a bit on the nature of sin and the beginnings of sin. I want to move now to how sin has affected us, if there's no other comments or questions. Yes, Brian. Um, have, is, um, like, is this really all that um, the meaning of sin is just missing the mark for original version? Or transgression? Uh, do you have another suggestion? <laughs> um, I'm guessing. Well, so, I, I mean, like, like uh, Paul seems to make it seem like, like I talked to you before, like sin could actually perhaps be even a curse. Um, even in Genesis 4, when you have God talking to Cain, says that... Sin is sin crouching sin at the door. Crouching at the door. Yeah. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you have where Paul talks about um, in Romans about how um, you should be considerate of your fellow Christians because some things may be a sin to them, but not necessarily a sin to you. 
but maybe it's okay for some people to drink a glass of wine, but a glass of wine for other people might be too drunk in it to be exempt. Right. So it, it seems like maybe there's more to the idea of sin. Like, like I, when I think about the Greek word, which I think is hamartia, it's a sin. Hamartia, yeah. Oh, ham, hamart. Well, I said it two ways to say it once again. And, um, <laughs> Fair so enough. Oh, certainly. I mean, Margaret asked the question uh, before we even began. Uh, are you, are you along these lines? Are you proposing to cover sin in one session? To which my answer was no. I'm proposing to talk about it in one session. So, I, I, I know. I, but, but I could, I could be mocked for trying to do any of these things in, in the time that I'm doing them in. So, <laughs> um, but no. To your point, a- absolutely. I. You know, brother, I, I honestly, I, I vacillate a little bit. I, I think I, I would say I have uncertainty, especially coming out of that, that part of Romans. Um, you know, I, I want to be careful because there's theologians that I really respect that I think blanch at the idea of is it an actual, can sin be in some senses an actual force um, separated say from you know operating whether it's in demons or you know like the principalities and powers the rulers of this of this present evil age um and so i would say i'm like depending on the day you ask me i'm like 55 65 percent that it could be an actual do i want to say impersonal force um also, on, on kind of the nature and nuance of sin, certainly in the uh, one pastor that I, I don't listen to all of his podcasts, but he does a couple week, uh, it's just a, like a 15 minute podcast on various topics. But among them is usually three to four minutes. On, he's doing a, a kind of a lectionary of hamartia. And so, and he's been doing that for, I think, two years now and still hasn't exhausted all of the different uh, expressions like different words that are in the uh, under the category of hum, hamartia. So there's all kinds of like nuance and and then in, you see that in places. And then you know, and he's going into the Septuagint as well for that. Um, and so yeah, there's <laughs> there's so much nuance and discussion that we could have. So yes, I've, I'm giving a basic a basic yeah. definition. No, no. I've, I've grown up in the church, and everybody talks about sin, but I've never actually seen where we all agree about what it is. And so, I mean, maybe it's, I felt to the Supreme Court justices, but it's kind of like pornography. Like You'll know it when you see it. Mind, you know yeah, it was, it. it was Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, Claude. Yes, but I, I think I think we're suggesting a both and, not an either or. 
so that it's both there is this so there's what I what I was first giving was a def, a defining of kind of like you just said there how do I know sin when I see it and there are and that's why I think the Bible has multiple definitions of of it's it's both it, it's a stain right like that's the like when you hear iniquity it's it's this staining it's this defilement that is on me um, it's it's a tra it's a transgression so transgression implies um, that there is a law that has been broken that I transgressed and it's a and the falling short is there's this mark of holiness and I, I'm aiming at that, but I'm not attaining to that mark of holiness. And so those are just three ways. And each of those is different, right? It's a di all sin, but different aspects or angles of this larger thing, this nature of sin. And then, yes, I, I think we have, to, we have to be confronted by texts like Paul and then understanding is... Is that merely anthropomorphic language for Paul to make a point? Or is it a literal description of he sees it as, like how the Bible, I think, talks about the flesh, for example. The world, the flesh, and the devil are who come against me, this unholy trinity. Well, how do I understand the flesh? Is the flesh this thing that's distinctive and separate from me as a new creation that I'm still... So I think those are good things to wrestle through. Be perfect, therefore, when Jesus says, yeah, in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, I think is the text. Yeah. And you're curious about how in the world does that happen? <laughs> yeah. Well, I... Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is that, yes, there is a, um, and there's a specific, uh, there's a theological term for this idea. I think we talked about it last semester. Um, this idea that, that you can actually attain perfection in this life. Um, and I, I remember um, at a previous church, I, I never knew of that. This is probably 25 years ago, um, sitting in a prayer time with a guy and some prayer tipped that off for him. Um, and, and so he started talking about it. I was like, this guy sounds crazy. Like, <laughs> you can't be perfect. But then there were some things that he was saying, and texts he's bringing up. Like, this was, I'm pretty sure this is one of the texts. And like, like oh, geez, well, what is Jesus saying there? Um, let me give you, this is what I was trying to look, find earlier, and now I, now I found it. So, so this, is, this is in the context of, um, so this is the Heidelberg Catechism, which I'm solely making my way. It's part of my morning liturgy, um, making my way through the questions and answers. This is question 56. Um, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of the Messiah's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature which I need to struggle against all my life. 
Rather, by his grace, God grants me the righteousness of the Messiah that I may never come into judgment. So God will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. And so I think, and I think, I think the catechism is correct here in its answer that we will struggle against our sinful nature and at the same time, by his grace, he's, he's operating and dealing with us according to the work of the Messiah applied to us. So this is, this is that idea of sanctification where it's so interesting in the Bible, in Paul particular, he will use both um, present active continued, like you're being sanctified, he will use, you're going to be sanctified. And he'll say, you've been sanctified. He will see all of them. And so the, the only way that I know how to understand that is there is a sense, uh, uh, there's this truth. Here's how John Piper said it one time. God had to make you perfect before he could make you good. <laughs> right? So he had, he, had to, um, he had to apply, right, that... He had to apply the righteousness, 1 Corinthians 5.21, he had to apply the righteousness of God to us, it, so that, or the righteousness of, of the Messiah to us. He sees us as perfect. Our, every sin that we'll ever commit is atoned for. He doesn't think of us, right? Because then when, when, I, when I posted on this on my website, in, in response to the, the catechism, my mind immediately went to, uh, to Psalm uh, 103. Um, this Yahweh who puts out of his mind all of our sins. He pardons all our way, waywardness. He heals all our illnesses. He restores our life from the pit. He garlands us with commitment and compassion. He fills us in, in his finery with goodness so that our youth renews like an eagle. He is compassionate and gracious, long-tempered and big in commitment. He doesn't argue permanently. He doesn't hold on to it for a long time. He hasn't acted toward us in accordance with our wrongdoings. He hasn't dealt with us in accordance with our wayward acts, right? In accordance with the Father's compassion for his children, Yahweh has had compassion for people who hold him in awe because he knows our frame. He is mindful we are earth. He knows that we're struggling with this sin nature. So he operates towards us in the same way that he operates towards Jesus all the while, like be be perfect, or the word there means to be complete or whole or mature. It's, it's that process. Like It's not merely perfection as in, yeah, there's a, there, I think Jesus is on about something more there. Um, but, but he's, again, he had to make us perfect before he could make us good. I, I love when John quits that because it, it's so helpful because I think Paul, when he talks in, in a past tense term of our sanctification, he's speaking out of a confidence of its sure completion so much that he can act as if it's already been done, right? Like I can have that kind of a confidence so that even like there's this, which to me, the catechism the other morning was so freeing because I do struggle daily with my sin nature, but God knows that. So like to enter into the day knowing that he already knows my failures, he's already pardoned me, 
He's already responding to me with, a, with an attitude of forgiveness and an inclination of love and compassion. It's just, like it just gives you breath. It doesn't suffocate you, right? Like destroy you. Like when I was a kid and read that, that destroyed me. In high school, I mean, I don't know if y'all know Enneagram. Um, I'm a one on the Enneagram scale, which is defined as the perfectionist. And so I have this constant inner voice of self-reproach that is always pointing out all my deficiencies. That's never ceasing and fairly unrelenting. And so that destroyed me. I'm like, I think I think that destroyed Luther too. Like he just saw, what is this righteousness of God that you're talking about? Because I can't attain to that. He he was angry at God because it's like you just seem so cavalier until until he was free. <laughs> Probably way more than you wanted to. So I spent several years in the Nazarene Church, and, yeah, and it was very, often very it was often talked about Christian perfection. And I understood Christian perfection much as you just described it. And, and I think that, you know, John Wesley would say on his deathbed he never obtained what you would say is a perfect, but it's a striving and a holiness to be like God and to become sanctified. And I knew some Nazarene people within the church one particularly old lady who swore her mother did not sin while she was on this earth in her later years because and it's like I can't even argue with you here but it's a totally different definition of perfection of what we think of as perfection and what you just described and what you just described is very much what I understood that it's a holiness and a and a striving towards. I just can't imagine anybody thinking that. And you don't see that sin. much anymore, but right. the, you, if you find it, you will sometimes find it with someone in that tradition. It's too apparent at the end of every day, isn't it? Like, <laughs> I didn't make it a day. Once again, I didn't make it the day. Yeah. And, and I have a comment on the, on the sin thing that maybe is too simplistic. If I pulled a $20 bill out of my pocket, it's a sinless $20 bill because it is a perfect $20 bill as the government made it. But a counterfeit dollar bill is a sinful $20 bill. And that sin can come up in different ways on that $20 bill in, in many ways. And like when we study or when someone studies counterfeit money they study the real money so well that they they know a counterfeit when it when they see it when they see it mm -hmm. and, and I think that's kind of the I'll know sin when I see it you know kind of what we were saying kind of like the pornography quote from Kennedy and I think that's sometimes you it's hard to put a finger on it but when it's not right it's not right yeah. And that may be too simplistic. It's just another thinking. Yeah. No, I don't think so. It, it, just another attempt to try and to get at, yeah, what does that look like? That'll be interesting when we go through Romans 14 and 15, won't it? Um, where Paul deals with what Brian's bringing up. Uh, let's look at seven statements. Um, theology of sin, seven statements. 
or maybe I should better say a partial theology of sin <laughs> and seven statements. Number one, inherited guilt. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. So here we go to Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. So I think many of us know Paul is teaching here that when Adam sinned, God reckoned the guilt of his sin to all people that would descend from him. Though we did not yet exist, God, in his sovereignty, providence, foreknowledge, knowing we would exist, counted us as those who were guilty like Adam. You can look down a little bit and see verses 18 and 19 in Romans 5. So then as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone for as just through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous what paul is showing us is that adam functioned uniquely as our representative head all members of the human race were represented by adam in the time of testing in the garden of eden and as our representative adam sinned and god counted us guilty in adam in the sense that adam represented the whole human race some thinkers have pushed back at this idea of representation. But if you think it's unfair for us to be represented by Adam, and this is a little simplistic, but and it, it could be argued against, but um, if you think that's unfair, you would also think it's unfair for us to be represented by the Messiah right. and to have his righteousness imputed to us by God, which is precisely Paul's point, Paul's point in the larger text of Romans 5, 12 to 21. God will deal with us either as represented by Adam and thus guilty or represented by the Messiah and thus covered by his righteousness. Again, for just as through one man's disobedience, the many are made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. Um, some describe this as federal headship theology, um, that God deals covenantally with humanity based on which figure is representing us, either Adam or or the Messiah. Number two, inherited corruption. We have a sinful nature. Now, yes? There's, there's a little bit of a caveat there to those two types of difference, right? Which is, um, for us to have salvation, we have to have faith in the one who performs the righteous act. Whereas, for sin, we don't need to have, we don't need to have faith in Adam that he sinned. You were born that way. Slight. Yeah, which is kind of significant, I think. In what way? Well, because, um, maybe I should preserve it. Why don't you go on and I'll Okay. <laughs> okay. No, because I, and, and, and I, I'm not being cheeky. I, yeah, I'm, I, I think it's, it is help. This is, I think, what's really fun theologically, or having theological discussions, is it's, it's really, what you have to do is right, like follow down the trail of the implications, which is usually what we're we're doing. Um, like you bring something up and think, okay, now let me play this out and do these implications make sense? So yeah, I think that's great. Actually, like. Everybody that came after Jesus to be righteous, but that's not the case. 
Right. So that's so the, these are these are actually kind of two totally different things. They seem similar, but there's that space that we have to suppress. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think this would be where I would say. Um, so yes, I think you're right. I think there's an application of the the application of the righteousness is different than the application of the guilt. Um, but I don't think, I, I think what Paul is probably more trying to correlate is the totality of that. So um, Christ's righteousness is sufficient, um, a la Calvin, to cover all of man's disobedience and all sin, but it's uniquely applied based on faith. Um, why I said it's, it's slightly different is because one thought that immediately came to mind is where, where, they, where they're out here, they're both finding their, like the source code is, is God, right? So even, so God is the one who's, who's saying, okay, this guilt is now in the DNA of humanity, as it were, um, and it therefore goes to all humanity, and I'm the one who's determining that. And in the same way, even those who come in where the righteousness is applied, I would, I believe that he's determining that as well, you know, which throws us back into our sovereignty and in providence conversation. So I'm still okay with, yeah, it's a slight difference, but it's never outside of how God is doing that. And I think the righteousness is sufficient for all, but, but point, but point taken. Yeah. You, you're, that's a valid difference. Yes. Right, yes, exactly, that's what I'm, yeah, that would be a specific text, yep, yeah. Um, inherited corruption. We have a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. In addition to the guilt that God imputes uh, to us because of Adam's sin, we also inherit a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. This means that we are born corrupted, and because of that, all of us commit actual sins. We thus confirm the guilty sentence that we inherited from Adam. For example, David is so overwhelmed with the consequences of his own sin that he looks back on his life, realizing that he was sinful from the beginning. Psalm 51.5. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. The very point of conception. Psalm 58.3. The wicked go astray from the womb. Liars wander about from birth. This inherited nature towards sin does not mean that human beings are all as bad as they could be constraints of civil law, the good gifts of family and government, the conviction of conscience that we see in Romans, all of these flow from God's common grace to all people and they provide restraining influences on man's sinful tendencies. We don't sin every single moment of every day, but we sure do sin a lot every day. <laughs> Total depravity. In our natural state, we lack spiritual good before God. We have no worthiness in ourselves and are morally bankrupt in ourselves. Again, this doesn't mean people are as bad as they could be or that we've lost the image of God. We still bear his image. And people are, people are capable of doing good deeds that on one level are good and kind. But because we are enemies of God, even these good deeds do not please him because we don't do them to honor him. Robert Raymond in his um, New Systematic Theology of the Christian Faith says it this way, Man in his raw, natural state, as he comes from the womb, is morally and spiritually corrupt in disposition and character. Now, right, like, this absolutely flies in the face of 
so much of what's being taught in our culture, right? We're inherently good would be the, the teaching of the culture. We, are, we come out good. We're good people. People aren't the problem. It's the system that's the problem, or it's this that's, it's like, well, but all of that comes from the creative works of people. Raymond continues, every part of his being, his mind, his will, his emotions, his affections, his conscience, his body has been affected by sin. That's what's meant by the doctrine of total depravity. Um, it's, it's like when you, if you took a beaker of crystal clean, pure water, right? And then you took a, a little eyedropper of bright blue dye and you emptied that eyedropper into the beaker, what happens over the course of just a few moments? It, it, it goes all through the water. That's what we are, t every part of us is touched by the blue dye of sin. A man's understanding, this is Raymond, a man's understanding is darkened, his mind is at enmity with God, his will to act is slave to his darkened understanding and rebellious mind, his heart is corrupt, his emotions are perverted, his affections naturally gravitate to that which is evil and ungodly, his conscience is untrustworthy, and his body is subject to mortality. Shot through. Which we see throughout the scriptures, Genesis 6, 5 and 6. When Yahweh saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Psalm 14, 2 and 3, Yahweh looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is even one who is wise, one who seeks God. One thinks of, uh, of uh, Moses, Sodom. If there's 50 God, will you, will you not rain down your wrath? If there's 40 God, if there, or excuse me, Abraham. What did I say? Moses. Moses. <laughs> Abraham. If there's 10, if there's just 10 God. Oh my goodness. He looks down from heaven to see if there's one who is wise, one who seeks God, but all have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one, which of course Paul quotes this in Romans. Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like something unclean. All our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf. All our iniquities carry us away like the wind. And then Paul telling Christians what their nature was before being regenerate, regenerated by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. See Romans 1 as well. So total depravity. Number four, total inability. In our actions, we are unable to do spiritual good before God. Someone uh, once explained the good news to me this way, it's, it's, not, it's not merely that you're like the drowning man. I think I've told you guys this before, but it's, it's like you're, you're all the way at the bottom of the ocean, right? Like, I mean, you're dead, dead, dead. And God reaches down and, and um, he woos you with the spirit and that's like pulling you up through, through these depths of water and you, 
you break above the surface of the water and that's like regeneration and then you see when you see Christ you can you can't but grab hold of him which is the irresistible grace of who Jesus is and so we're absolutely incapable. Dead people can't, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people can't save themselves. Again, Robert Raymond, because man is totally or pervasively corrupt, he is incapable of changing his character or acting in a way that is distinct from his corruption. He is unable to discern, to love, to choose the things that are pleasing to God. As Jeremiah says, can the Cushite change his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? If so, you might be able to do what is good, you who are instructed in evil, but you can't. A few more verses on this. Romans 8, 7 to 8. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The person without the spirit does not receive what comes from God's spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of the Messiah who is the image of God. So we can't be, this should keep us brokenhearted. Uh, towards, towards those who don't know Jesus and aware of what we were saved from. The only reason that we have any ability to do good whatsoever is, you know, right, it's, it's that opposite of 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. I, I do have the Spirit operating in me now that does allow me to see the glory of the gospel, of the glory of the Messiah, who is the image of God. Number five, all are sinful before God. Scripture testifies to the universal sinfulness of mankind. No one is exempt. No one is above this description. David says, no one living is righteous before you. Psalm 143, verse two. Solomon says, there is no one who does not sin. First Kings 8, 46. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. A single sin, number six, makes us legally guilty before God. As we saw earlier, sin is a personal opposition to God. Claude, a personal opposition. It is not the greatness of the law that makes sin worthy of punishment, but the greatness of the lawgiver. Paul affirms that the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, Romans 5, 16. Just one sin. I grew up learning that, like when you think, like, well, one sin, that doesn't, like, how, that just seems a little outsized, doesn't it? Like, I mean, come on, God, like, chill. Like, it's one sin. And I remember being taught, but yes, re remember it, who the sin is against. So one sin against an infinitely holy God bears an infinite consequence. James declares, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So there's the, there's the net. There's the network that's connected. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Or just listen to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount who presses this so much further. Really fills, uh, right? He says he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, to fill it up, to see. If you lust with a, after a woman in your heart, then you already have committed adultery with her. 
Number seven, we deserve God's eternal wrath because of our sin. Ephesians 2, 3. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath. John 3, 36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So sin is not only unjust, reprehensible, filthy, and disgusting to God, it also rightly deserves God's good and perfect punishment. God disapproves of sin and rightly pours out wrath on his enemies who have scorned, refused, and disobeyed him. Why will God definitely punish sin? John Murray explains that God will not be false to his own character. That's why. To be, compla- quote, to be complacent towards that which is the contradiction of his own holiness would be a denial of himself. So that is the correlate of his holiness. And this is just saying that the justice of God demands that sin receive its retribution. The question is not at all, how can God, being what he is, send men to hell? The question is, how can God, being what he is, save them from hell? Which that, that quote, which um, is in his collected writings, and I, I couldn't find it today, but I remember reading, uh, I think it was first year seminary, John Murray's Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied. That quote changed the question for me always. Because, right, isn't this is, you guys, this is such a common question that people have. How can God send someone to hell? And, and Murray turns that on his head and, say, and he says, you're asking the wrong question. You assume that anybody deserves to be saved. You, de- you deserve that you, you should be saved. And you, what you should be absolutely flummoxed by and overwhelmed by is that he saves anybody. You're not understanding sin and God rightly. So then you ask the wrong question. That was so foundational and so helpful for me. So conclusion, we have a sinless Savior. Uh, John Murray's question is a good one. How can God, being what he is, save them from hell? It points us forward to what we're going to study next week. The cacophonous and ugly sounds of our shameful sin should lead us to despair of our own righteousness and tremble before God's wrath. So we, we, should, we should rest as the catechism was teaching me the other morning that God is compassionate, that he pardons. Right, This is the tension of the Christian life. I'm not supposed to despair over my sin, be depressed over my sin, but I am, right, Paul says there is a godly regret. There's a conviction, not condemnation, but there's a conviction. So I, I should should not despair because there is a righteousness that can be found in Jesus. There's one man who never sinned, who was a new Adam. Adam disobeyed the father in the Garden of Eden and Jesus obeyed the father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was exiled. He was exiled from God's presence on the cross. He drained the cup of God's wrath to the full, absorbing the fullness of our shame and guilt and transferring his righteousness to all who believe. If we fail to see sin as our biggest problem and the Messiah's sacrifice, well, it would probably just seem odd. But when we rightly mourn our sin, then we can rightly delight in our Savior, which is what we're going to do 
for the next two weeks as we study the person of the Messiah, our beautiful, sinless, matchless, gracious King, who Paul says we are in him, in him, and thus whole, Tim, <laughs> complete. <laughs> All right, any, any final questions? Question or uh, comments or not necessarily like the funnest topic. It's gonna be, I feel like next week's going to be far. More, next week's going to be far more enjoyable <laughs> meditating on yeah, on the Messiah. The whole question of sin is so key. It is. It's, it's so ne- It's necessary. We won't see the. I don't think we're. I mean, in my own salvation, it wasn't so much the attraction of the Savior when I didn't know Him, but the weight of sin. And I think that's true of a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Yes? You know, the doctrine of total depravity, which is something I absolutely accept, um, is very offensive to many people. I, I really believe that the reformers advanced it as a counter to Catholic scholastic theology. There's, there's something in scholastic the, uh, Catholicism and specifically in Renaissance Catholicism that thought that somehow the intellect was uh, exempt, yeah. exempt from this hmm. or somehow yeah. higher, that the, the intellect could somehow reach God even if the rest of us was, I mean, they definitely thought the body was corrupt. But if the intellect could reach God, and of course that's a Greek—that's a Greek idea. Yeah. Uh, and and abs- you know, total depravity cuts right against that kind of theology. Yeah, yeah. I was just actually—it's funny you should bring that up, Claude. I—I'm in the midst of. Um, so this this year in my my personal liturgy and communion time with our Father, I'm I'm spending the whole year in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the resources I'm reading is uh, uh, by a scholar named Jonathan Pennington called uh, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. And to set up, he spends, he's going to spend the first half of the book setting up how we should rightly read The Sermon on the Mount. And I just got into for about the last five minutes of my reading time this morning was him getting into this Catholic, so I'm, I'm fascinated to read a little bit more about what you're talking about, because I think it's exactly what you're talking about, this idea that there were separate pieces, which Luther really was one of the first that was like, that, is, that does not square with what he was understanding in the scripture. And, and then certain trails of Lutheranism, Pennington just says briefly, or at least in the part that I've read so far, like, Still got caught up in I think the Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic understanding that you're that you're suggesting. So yeah, I look forward to reading more about that as I go along, because I I I, didn't, I was not aware of this whole thing operating in Catholicism at the time of Luther. But it's not uniformly Catholic. It's Renaissance Catholicism. Okay. And, and scholasticism in particular, the, the theology of Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, and he he in a footnote he quotes Aquinas, and I can't remember the, but yes, but as a proponent, right? Aquinas as a proponent. Aquinas is my, in my understanding, is the lead scholastic theologian okay. of Roman Catholicism. That was, that was pushing that agenda. Then, gotcha. 
Well, I, I, I'm looking forward to learning more about that. I'm so, I'm just a poor historian. So the older I get, I feel like I, I enjoy so much more some of this, this history and seeing the, there's nothing new, right? Like these problems that keep cropping up, they, they came before. Yes, exactly, brother. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, Roger, would you mind closing us in prayer? Sure. Lord, we just thank you for this ability to come tonight to, to share opinions, to learn, to learn from Matthew. We thank you for his preparation and his love for your word that he shares with us. Lord, as, um, as we have our questions let us always turn to you, Lord, Amen. to the Bible Amen. Uh, for our answers. Lord, give us grace in what we don't understand and where we fail. And until we meet again, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Roger. Thanks, everybody. Since you're studying...